In the Bible we have four Gospels, four books that are written to tell us about Jesus and to tell us of his life and his uh, mission in this world. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Four slightly different perspectives, but all about one mission. The mission of Jesus who came from heaven to die. We're going to look at Mark's gospel. Uh, We could take any of them, really. We could take any of the four, and they'd all give us this sense of this Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one that they'd waited for for centuries, the one that God had promised would come, that he would deal with the sin problem, that he would come and he would be the prophet, the priest, the king. He would be the fulfillment of God's purposes. It was all about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, come from heaven, come to earth, to die. In fact, in Mark's gospel, uh, it begins right at the beginning of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He wants the reader to be completely clear. This is who I'm talking about. This is who it is. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Son of God. And then as the story progresses, as you read on through Mark's gospel, you realize very quickly that you, the reader, know who he is. But the people in the story don't. I use the word story, but you know what I mean. It's not fiction. This is history. This is fact. But as the story progresses, as the history is told, you kind of get the sense that they're not getting what's happening. They don't understand who he is. They they, they can't see what it's all about. And for the next seven, eight chapters, Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing. He's uh, uh, making things right. He's, he's dealing with demons. He's feeding crowds. He's doing all these wonderful things. And, and if we have eyes to see, and if we know our Old Testaments, which is also a little bit of uh, what goes on there, and understanding all that Mark is presenting, it becomes really clear, this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This is God, the God of the Old Testament, walking on two legs in the midst of his people. And finally, in chapter 8, Peter is the one that steps forward and says, You're the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, we've known that since the first verse. But finally, Peter gets it. And then Jesus immediately starts to talk about his death. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be betrayed and and suffer and die. And I'll rise again on the third day. And the disciples don't understand. But what Mark wants us to understand is that you cannot have a Christ who just does miracles. That's not an option. You can't have a Jesus that just comes to do miracles and to make our lives happy for now. He's come to die. And so there's no Christ without the cross. There's no Savior unless he suffers. It's more than miracles. He's on a mission heading for his death. And so Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, eight chapters in, uh, we hear somebody actually say, You're the Christ. When do we hear somebody say, you're the son of God? Not until the very end of the book. We're going to look at Mark's presentation of the death of Christ. If you took Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and and combined them, it would be a fascinating study. I'd encourage you to do it. You see the different writers emphasize different things. They're not contradicting. 
But they're just making different emphases. And, and as we look through Mark, I want to try and help us see what Mark's emphasis is because it's a powerful one. I've been really stunned as I've been studying it, trying to grasp, okay, what is Mark saying? It's tempting to go to Matthew or to Luke or, or to John. But no, what is Mark saying? And so if you have one of the blue Bibles, perhaps turn to 719, page 719. Uh, you don't have to turn to it. I'm going to sort of walk my way through the text. If you'd rather just listen, that's completely fine. If you'd rather close your eyes, that's not going to offend me at all. I want our hearts to be focused by Mark on the cross. Really, the passage uh, that we're looking at is chapter 15. But let's just sneak a peek back into chapter 14 uh, for a moment. Because chapter 14 finishes with Jesus on the Thursday night. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, praying. And then it tells us in verse 44, the betrayer. That is Judas. The betrayer had a signal. And so Judas came with this uh, posse of, of guards and he kissed Jesus. That was the signal. And he betrayed him. And verse 50, I think, is, is almost like a title that hangs over the entire passion uh, account in Mark's gospel. It says, then everyone deserted him and fled. In fact, Mark adds an extra detail now that none of the others mention. In verse 51, he says, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. My guess, and most people, I think, tend to, to see it this way, this is probably Mark himself. Mark, who 30 years later would write down this gospel uh, using a lot of Peter's stories that he'd spent time with learning from Peter, uh, using Paul's emphasis as well that he'd learned from Paul, but also a little bit of eyewitness. Because as a teen, maybe it's perhaps a guess, but maybe it was in Mark's family's home that they had the Last Supper. Imagine, can't you, a, a young man, a teenager, listening in, sneaking out, following in his pajamas, and being there. And then when everything breaks, uh, breaks out in the garden, somebody grabs him, and he, he knows he's got to get out of there. And even he flees. And it comes right after verse 50 that everyone deserted him and fled. Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and they accuse him of lots of different things. None of the stories match up. It's a complete farce. But in the end, Jesus gives them what they're looking for. He gives them something to condemn him for. And actually, let's just take a little peek at that verse 61. The high priest said, are you the Christ, son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And believe me, they knew what he meant. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. That was the, the first of two trials that Mark gives us. The Jewish one. And it's for blasphemy. It's for claiming to be God. Ironically, that was true. And yet he's condemned to death for it. You see, Jesus came from heaven to die. So what happened? As he went 
forward to the cross, this mission, this goal that was his, what happened to those around him? We've already seen Judas betray him. We've seen everybody flee. And at the end of the chapter, there's Peter, the one who had stepped out and said, you're the Christ just a few chapters ago. Now here's Peter denying that he even knows him. I don't know this man you're talking about. He, he uh, called down curses on himself. He swore to them. He's passionate because he's scared. And so here's Jesus in this mock sham of a trial. And out in the courtyard, one of his followers is there, but he's denying vehemently that he knows him. Jesus came from heaven to die, but they all deserted him. Judas, the disciples, Peter, everyone. And so we come into chapter 15. Hannah read that very well to us just now. And, and here we have the early morning, the Friday, Jesus brought before Pilate. You see, the Jews, they condemned him as worthy of death, but they couldn't do it. They didn't have that power. They had to get the Romans, the, the uh, occupying forces, to uh, put into action their condemnation. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate wasn't impressed by this whole thing. He could see through it. He knew that it was envy. He knew that it was pride. But, they, but he knew that this was a problem that he had to deal with. Especially since they're not saying blasphemy. Say, say blasphemy to Pilate. He'd say, blast what? I don't care. I don't understand this religious nonsense. Take it away. But they don't say that. They say, he's calling himself a king. Now that's going to get the attention of an occupying force. Because there's no king but Caesar. And so Pilate talks to Jesus. Jesus does not respond. Doesn't need to. Nothing to say to what Pilate is saying. Uh, but there's a crowd there. Remember this is early morning. Most people are not up early in the morning. This is a, a select crowd. A rabble that's been roused. Here's Pilate. And there's a courtyard. Maybe two, three, four hundred people. This is not the tens of thousands. This is not the crowd that a few days ago was shouting Hosanna to the son of David. This is a crowd that's been specially brought together by the religious leaders. As supposedly representative of the Jewish masses. And they had this custom, and, uh, and we, we had it read to us, and, uh, and they, he would release somebody to them, sort of a little peacekeeping effort. And so he offers them Jesus, the king of the Jews, and instead, uh, stirred up by the leaders, they ask for Barabbas. It says that Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Isn't that ironic? Pilate offers them Jesus, and they ask for Barabbas. Barabbas was part of an uprising, part of a takeover attempt, and he was a murderer. Jesus wasn't a murderer. Jesus healed. Jesus made well. Jesus put things right. He didn't destroy. And despite all the efforts of everybody around him, Jesus did not lead an uprising. He refused to. And yet they claim Barabbas. There's an irony here that we often miss. The name Barabbas it sounds a lot like son of the father in that language. Isn't that amazing? We don't want Jesus. We want the son of the father. And yet who's Jesus? 
Jesus is the son of the father, and yet they don't want him. They reject him, and they choose somebody else, uh, and they cry out, crucify. He came to his own, John says, and his own received him not. But Mark gives us that same sense of the Jewish people rejecting, turning their back, deserting Jesus. And so Jesus was flogged. I'm not going to go into details about that. Suffice it to say that a flogging for some was enough to finish the journey. Some never made it to the cross. The flogging was brutal. Jesus was handed over to be crucified. You see, Jesus came from heaven to die. The Jews, the religious leaders, everyone deserted him. And Jesus is taken off by the soldiers into the praetorium and they they put a a purple robe on him. Sort of a fake kingly outfit. And they weave together a crown of uh, very nasty thorns and and place this crown on his head. And they're mocking. Mocking him for being king of the Jews and yet he was the king. Actually in, in the Roman way of thinking the crown that was placed on Caesar's head was a really significant image. It was an image of, of his divinity. That he was more than a man. And here they are mocking God. With the, the scarlet or the purple robe and the, the crown of thorns. And they mock him and they strike him. And, and then they lead him out to crucify him. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene. It's North Africa. It's called Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and was forced, and they forced him to carry the cross. Let's just think about that for a second. Even there, I I see a hint of this recurring theme coming through. Here's a a passerby, not not a disciple, not a a brother, not a friend, not a follower, a, a, a nobody. And he's forced to carry the cross of Jesus. There's nobody there for Jesus. I love how Mark tells us exactly who this man is. Not just because it's historical fact, but because he wants his readers to know who this man is. It's the father of Alex and Rufus. Alex and Rufus. You see, when they would have heard this, they would have known those two probably. Two young men, two boys at that time and yet later on become followers of Christ, become part of the Christian community so that when Mark's gospel was first read, they would say, hey, Alex, there you are. I love those little touches, don't you? This is real, real history. And Jesus, with the help of a stranger, carries the cross and they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That would be like a sedative, almost a sort of uh, oral anesthetic to dull the senses. He he refused it. He was going to follow through with what he would come to do. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9 a.m. And the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. I'm not going to describe crucifixion. But I will say this. Today we live in a culture where death has been absolutely sanitized. 
We get to see it all the time on the television to kind of dull our senses, but in normal life we don't get to see it. We don't get to see it in terms of the food we eat. We don't get to see it in terms of, uh, of criminal punishment. We don't get to see it even within the family. When somebody dies, we like to hide it away, keep it behind a curtain, make it all clean. But this was a culture that didn't have any of that. This was a culture where you'd kill your own animals and prepare them for lunch. This was a culture where animals were brought to the temple and were killed constantly. The sound of death was all around the the sights and the smells. I mean, imagine the, the smell that there would be around the temple with the amount of death that was there. I mean, this was a, a culture that was full of death. It was normal to them. And yet to them, in that culture, at that time, the Romans knew that crucifixion would turn their stomachs. The Romans couldn't come up with a more effective deterrent than crucifying. And so they would, anyone, anyone that threatened their power, anybody that threatened uh, the Pax Romana, the peace that they'd established, would be crucified. It was so bad they wouldn't let a Roman citizen go through it. But anybody else, they would crucify. Why? Because it was a deterrent. If you had any inkling, any a little thought inside of starting a rebellion, you'd see a crucifixion and you'd remind yourself why there's no way you're going to risk that. So I'm not going to describe it, but realize it was horrifying. Verse 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, your mind might be going to one of the other Gospels where Jesus interacts with them and uh, and there's a conversation with one. Mark doesn't give us any of that. The other Gospels give us seven sayings of Christ from the cross in total. Mark only gives us one. We haven't got there yet. You see, Jesus here is all alone. Verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. It's possible, isn't it, to be absolutely alone in the midst of a crowd. Maybe you've experienced that. The cross wouldn't have been up on a a hill, picturesque in the distance. The Romans used it as a deterrent. They put the crosses right beside the road where there's a lot of people passing in and out of the city. I I was shocked when I went to Israel to, to see that actually the crosses typically were quite low that the legs would be bent so the person hanging would actually be almost at eye level. And so here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and the passers-by in his face with vitriol, with mockery, with insult, with spit coming out, are absolutely tearing into him. Get off the cross. Can you imagine how lonely it can be to be all alone in the midst of that kind of crowd? Verse 31, in the same way the chief priests... And teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then we get a comment about the the thieves. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus came from heaven to die. 
the passers-by, the, the, the religious leaders, uh, even the, the robber on one side insulted him and mocked him. He was alone. Everyone deserted him. Finally, Jesus says something. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, that's midday, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a moment. You see, Jesus came from heaven to die. And everyone deserted him, even his own father. That's, 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 how do we get our minds around that? How do we process the fact that within the Trinity, uh, this eternal communion, Father, Son, and the Spirit binding them together, that in that moment, somehow, there was separation. Somehow, from where Jesus was hanging, uh, his father wasn't there. He turned his back something that had never happened before. Something that we don't think could ever happen. It happened. And Jesus cried, my God, why have you, even you, forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. They're getting confused by the word he used there. Uh, One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. From their perspective, he didn't. Jesus was alone, verse 37, with a loud cry. Jesus breathed his last. It's powerful, isn't it? Mark's presentation is so stark. Not any explanation, a lot of things not included. It's just this very stark, constant sense of Jesus going to the cross and everybody deserting him. Judas betrayed him. The disciples fled. Peter denied him. The crowds rejected him. The religious leaders stirred them up to cry out for his crucifixion. The passers-by insulted him. The religious leaders standing around mocked him. Even those suffering the same fate, uh, at one point both of them, and at the end one of them ridiculed him. Jesus, who came from heaven to die, and everyone deserted him. And surely our hearts must cry out, why? Why? This isn't right, this shouldn't happen. And yet if you've read through Mark... You know, this is what had to happen. This is what Jesus intended to happen. Why was he all alone? And why doesn't anybody see who he is? Two more verses. 38 and 39. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Finally, after 15 chapters, finally somebody says it. Somebody sees it. I don't know how much he understood of what he was saying. could be complete irony. And yet the way Mark presents it to us, you get that sense that finally somebody has recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. How did he know? 
What, what's happened at this moment? Jesus has died. It even says he stood right there. Think about it, a centurion. A hardened, battle-hardened, war-winning centurion. He'd seen more bloodshed than anyone you've ever met. He'd probably shed more blood than anyone you've ever met. This is a, a tough man who's seen it all before, time and again, day after day. And here he is standing next to the cross to make sure nobody takes the person off. And when he saw how Jesus died, he recognized somehow that this man was different. That this one is the Son of God. I think the same is true for us. We don't really understand who Jesus is. We don't really grasp what Jesus is all about until somehow by his grace we catch a glimpse of the cross. Because it's in seeing him die that we realize who he is. And verse 38, in the shortest possible way, with so much imagery tied into it, tells us exactly why he went through it all. The curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Jesus came from heaven. And one by one, everybody forsook him. Judas, the disciples, Peter, the the Jews, the leaders, the nation, the passers-by, even his own father left him alone so that he could open up a way that we need never be alone. A way that the separation between God and man is dealt with so that we as sinful people can have our sins dealt with and somehow by the grace of God, by the death of Christ, we can come into the presence of God and know what life is really all about. Fellowship, communion, love, relationship with God. Never alone. Because he was completely alone. That's who Jesus is. That's what our God is like. That's how far he would go. That's how much he would do for us to have a relationship with him. Jesus came from heaven and he came to die. Every single person deserted him. Even his father. And yet he's made a way for us to come into God's presence, to come into God's family, to become part of what we were designed to be, part of a relationship with God. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for sending his son. Praise Jesus, who is God, who died in our place.